Well, hey, Arvis, it's great to be back with you uh, this week. Um, so grateful for Pastor Nate taking last Sunday and when he is bigger than my hopelessness and had the opportunity last Sunday to go up to Harvest on the north side of Indianapolis and just fill in there for Pastor Brian and uh, just enjoyed the time there. But I got to tell you, um, I love it here and um, it's a special place. It here is, and um, it was a reminder of that even this week. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but even this week I got a, a pastor... Uh, email from a pastor headhunter, hey, you interested in somewhere else? And uh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, no, no. That's not. I just love it here and love this place, and the Lord's very good. Um, isn't he? He is. Amen. Well, hey, let's just dive into it today. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, it's about a third of the way in your Bible. It's right before the book of Psalms. So if you find Psalms, hang a left. And you'll come to the book of Job chapter 1. Chapter 1 is a very special text, uh, really for a couple reasons. Uh, Number 1, it's it's kind of an Isaiah 6, Revelation 1, Revelation 4 and 5 kind of a text. I mean, it's not very often we have texts in Scripture that get to kind of take us into the place of the heavenly throne room. And this is one of those text with that. The other, why this is so special, uh, even for me here and us, is that this was, believe it or not, this was actually the text that we used on our very first launch Sunday back in March of 2008 was Job chapter 1, because, I mean, everybody preaches out of Job chapter 1, and uh, it's really special. That, By the way, who who was here? If you were here on our very first launch Sunday, raise your hand. Wow, that's cool. Hey, the Lord's been at work, hasn't he? The Lord's been at work in us. Well, today it's when he is bigger than my suffering, and um, I am assuming today that you are here out of a genuine interest, or maybe you might even call it at this point an intrigue, if you're at a place of trying just to figure out who the Lord is and what the Bible has to say about him. But I am assuming that you're in the place of an interest in the Lord, an intrigue in the Lord, and, and with that assumption on the table, uh, I'm going to put a question on the table for us today to work with, and it is this question. Is your interest, is your intrigue in the Lord for who He is or for what He does? Let me refine that just a little bit. Is your interest, is your intrigue in the Lord really being driven from, mainly based upon uh, who he is or what he can do for you. Now, both of those actually are intersecting. However, there is a core base. And I'll say this, oftentimes the gospel is being communicated in the way of what the gospel is all about for you. And the fact of the matter is the core foundation of the gospel is who the Lord is, okay? And what happens is as people get so keyed in on what the Lord can do for me that they actually are losing sight of and not even seeing who the Lord is. And uh, uh, we're going to go here today. Is it about who the Lord is? And his beauty and his majesty and everything of him? Or is it about what he can do for you? There's four scenes here. I put it in this text here. Uh, Let's just dive into scene number one. There was a man in the land of Uz. 
There was a man in the land of Uz. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, and his name was Job. Well, you could say Job, but it's, uh, we talk about him, him as Job. Uh, his name is Job. Uh, I want to be clear on this because the, the way it even starts out in light of a very famous uh, old movie, uh, this is not a pretend story. Okay, this is not a pretend story, it's not an allegory, it's not about some non-existent man in a non-existent land. Uh, I want for you to understand that here in this land of us, there are no munchkins, there, there are no color-changing horses in this land, uh, there is no yellow brick road, and there are, thank the Lord, no flying monkeys. Did those things not scare the living life out of you as a kid? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is a real deal man living in a real deal place, okay? This is a real deal man living in a real deal place, and we're going to see what real deal happens with him. Uh, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was, a, was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Boy, what an introduction on this guy. We're told four things about him, and I would say it this way. The first two are results of the third, and the fourth one is how the third is lived out. The first two are the results of the third one, and the fourth one is the results of how the third is lived out. Big part here is the third one, the fear of God, is the centering foundation of who Job is. Uh, Job feared God, and he lived that out by turning away from evil, and as a result of all of that, he was a blameless and upright man. I would say it this way, bottom line, Job feared God. Now, when we hear that word, we think of like a haunting movie or something like that, but the fear of God biblically, I would call it, is made up of two factors. How many factors? Okay, the first factor in this is what I would call the wow factor. It's the, wow, God is awesome. It's kind of the jumping up and cheering and thrilled and excited as can be. Uh, it's looking at his creation and his love and his power and his magnificence. It's seeing his grandeur and his sovereignty and his greatness and his grace and just going, wow, God is awesome. That is part of the fear of God. On the other side of the coin of the fear of God, a part of the fear of God is I would call it the oh my factor of it. There is a reality of who God is in his holiness or in his set apartness, in his fact that he is the one that is to judge. Uh, he is the one who has all glory before him. I would think of Revelation chapter 1 when John comes before the Lord and falls face down as though he's going to die. Oh my, that is the reality of the Lord. And so often today, uh, it's, it can be to where one side of that coin of the fear of the Lord is preached, proclaimed, or grabbed onto without the other, but it's both. The fear of the Lord is about his grand, magnet, grand magnificence and get excited about it, and the fear of the Lord is also about a fall on your face. This is God. Oh my. And both are a part of that. And Job was that. And I would say it this way. Your wow, oh my factor measuring reality will tell you of your worship of the Lord. By the way, when I say worship, I'm not just talking about what we were just doing and singing here. I'm talking about in all of life. 
And I'll say this, if you are, have a small, wow, oh my, reality of who God is, like, wow, God's pretty cool, man. You're awesome, dude. You know, and yeah, whoa, wow, you're, 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 you're yeah, wow, you're, you're pretty something, God. I'm just going to tell you, well, how, how, what's that going to drive in your life? That is going to drive a small living out the fear of the Lord because you have a small fear of the Lord. But as you come to understand and come to see the, 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 the grandness and the greatness and the grandeur and yet the holiness and the set-apartness of God, when that is there and is before you in front of your face, you live like it's talking about. You live as someone then who, fearing God, turns away from evil. But so oftentimes it's like, well, why do I sin? Why do I sin? Why do I sin? Because it's really pretty easy because we love ourselves more than we love him. Because I want what I want more than what he wants of me. That's just the bottom line reality of it. And so often it can be like, how, how do I turn from my sin and put this in place and this in place? And those are all fantastic. Those are all really good. But a big poor part of this is, hey, there's the deal. See God bigger. You need to see God bigger. You need to be more face down in, in your heart, in your thinking about who he is. And Job turned away from evil. Why? Because Job had a big, oh, why, oh my, wow factor of who God is. A big view of God changes how you think, how you speak. It changes what you do. It changes what you don't do. It changes what you watch, it changes where you go, it changes what you wear, it changes how you spend money, it changes how you do relationship with other people, it changes how you do marriage, it changes how you do parenting, it changes how you grandparent, it changes how you date, it changes how you go to school, it changes who, who you make as your closest friends and confidants, it changes your view and doing of sex, it changes how you handle conflict, it changes how you view and do church. It changes how you view and handle calamity and suffering. Question. How big is God to you? Really. I mean, really. How big is God? Job feared God, and he lived that out by turning away from evil. And that resulted in him here being declared as someone who's blameless and upright by, just real quickly, these two words, blameless. Blameless kind of has a horizontal component of it. It's kind of the horizontal relationship with people part of it. It's a, he was a person of consistent integrity. Now, understand this. Job was not some superhuman spiritual dude, okay? Job was a man. And he struggled with sin, just like everybody else. But at the same time, he had this, on the whole of it, this consistent integrity. When it came to being a husband, when it came to being a dad, when it came to being a businessman, his integrity was consistent. Also, he was upright. That's kind of more of the vertical component of it. It's referencing kind of the, he, was, he conformed himself to God's standard. In other words, what the Lord says to do and what the Lord desires of me, Job was the kind of man that it was like, you know what, I'll, 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 I'll bend towards that side rather than my side. He was an upright man. And when it came to being a Yahweh worshiper, he conformed himself to God's expectations. Not perfectly, of course not. But on the more so than the not he did. 
out of this, I just want to put on the table this. The fear of the Lord is not a static set of knowledge that you have. It's not a fill-in-the-blank answer. Do you fear, the, fear God? Well, yeah, I mean, I can tell what he did. I can, tell, I can even tell you the books of the Bible. Hey, I'm telling you, ask me where we are. You know, ask me to go to one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. I'm going to the contents page, okay? I don't know all those little, well, you're not spiritual. No, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, in the movement of things, we tend to think the fear of the God, knowing God, has to do with this basis of things. Instead, filling in the blank, instead what it really has to do is the fear of God is the driving force. It is the lens of which we see and view life. It's how we do life. Can you see whether you fear the Lord? Yes, you can. How? By how you do life. And seriously, if there's small living for the Lord... There's a small fear of God at the core of the problem. And at the core of the answer is, need a bigger view of God. Job was a a guy that had a high fear of the Lord, and it showed. Now, we're just in verse 1. We're going to pick the pace up. Ready? Verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. In other words, a whole pile of employees to take care of all that 11,000 head of animals. So that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Why the inventory list? Well, because it's giving us some needed information that's going to be important here as we move along in this true story in this real man's life. And the inventory list consists of a couple of things. Number one, Job had a large family. You know, in our day and age, we don't understand that. Uh, um, I mean, we understand large families, but we don't understand the blessing of that. When you go back in a day we didn't have the hospitals and the kind of care that we had, oftentimes birth was one of the most tragic times in life. And to have a large family was viewed as a blessing of the Lord because you actually had seven children in, in the reality. It was a blessing of the Lord. Also, we find here clearly Job was a business mogul. He had some 11,000 animals and a staff to handle that. Uh, Back uh, on our opening Sunday when I talked on this text, uh, I referenced back in that day, it's larger now, but back in that day, Fair Oaks Farms, you know, up in Rensselaer, Indiana, when you drive up that way, like we're going to be driving, a whole bunch of us are going up to Chicago for a few days here for a conference, and we'll be going by there, and I think it's God's will that we'll probably stop there. And... um, (laughs) And at the Fair Oaks farm there, back in 2008, nowadays they have, I think, it's about 30,000 head of milking cows. And back in that day, they had right around 12,000 head of milking cows. Now, uh, understand this. I've been to the state fair. I'm not a farmer. But I just know this. Like, thousands of animals are a lot. And these aren't like ants. These are big animals. And by the way, back in that day, they did not have uh, electric production processes. They didn't have the milking machines. They didn't have where the, the, literally the cows just turn on a belt as, as the things are happening. They had to do it manually. Can you imagine that? 
taking care of all of these animals manually, uh, in that day, this would have been equivalent to what Farrell's farm at 32,000 head of cow is today. And it is one of the largest farms in all of the United States. This dude was a business mogul tycoon. And that's why the information is being put there. And plus, we'll find out a little bit more. By the way, I want to add Job 29. You can go there another time. But in Job 29, it says that Job, uh, when Job entered the room, the aged arose. It said that nobles and princes refrained from talking in his presence. It says that Job helped the poor and that he fought, was a father to orphans. It says that he searched out causes for others. I tell you, this is, this is like a man that all of us men, all of us women would want to have the characteristics of this, right? I mean, here is a God-fearing, respected business tycoon that loved the Lord and loved people. The whole spectrum of people, from the wealthy to the poor, verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did how often? Continually, like a lot, like all the time. Okay, what's happening here? Let me sum it up. What's happening here is what this is referencing is when each child's birthday would come along, there, there would be a feast and it would include all the siblings with that. By the way, what a loving family. I come from a, a family business and having heard about fa other family businesses where it's just like boom, tragedies. And here's, by the way, a family with older children that are coming together and they actually love one. And I'm telling you, it tells so much about what's going on in this family. And after each birthday celebration, Job, acting as the Old Testament father priest, I'll call it, officiating kind of in that manner on behalf of his household, remember the cross hasn't come yet in this whole process, he, he would pull the family together and consecrate them. In other words, Job would, Job would dedicate them, with uh, ritually sanctify them, and declare them acceptable before the Lord. Why is this important? Because Job was just not a business tycoon and personally strong in the Lord. Job was a godly father. And when you become really rich, there is the tendency to want to, as a parent, just to give them everything, providing them homes, providing them opportunities, providing them experiences and celebrations together. But, and Job was fine with that, if you will. But in this whole process of it, that wasn't the core thing. Job was first and foremost concerned about the spiritual condition of his children. And the whole first paragraph is helping us to understand in this scene who this guy is. And he is a God-fearing, respected, business tycoon that loved people and his family. He was their spiritual centering point. He lived Christ out, if you will, in modern day terms. He lived Christ out in his private life, in his family life, 
in his business life, and in his public life. There is a whole pile of application that can go right there, right? More of that in us. More of that in us. Friends, the fear of the Lord is to permeate all of life. We don't come here and do a fear of the Lord and then go out there and do a whatever. This fuels, Lord willing, the fire in us to go out in the fear of the Lord, to live the fear of the Lord. This permeates all of life. Scene two, there was a day in the heavenly throne room. This is crazy. Watch this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Let me read that one more time. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Now Satan has already fallen. He is fallen from God's uh, throne room, fallen from grace. But here he is presenting himself before the Lord with these other angelic or these other heavenly beings. Let's just kind of leave it at that. And let me say it this way, friends. Satan is not God's equal. It is not that God's over here and Satan's over here on my shelf and they're pretty equal and they're coming. No, no, no. Do you see what's happening? Satan is presenting himself before the Lord. Who's in charge? Not Satan. Satan is only allowed to do what God allows him to do. Oh, now we're getting there. Let's keep going. I would say it this way. Satan is God's flunky. Okay, how's that for theological terms? Satan is God's created flunky. In the whole problem of it. And he's the antagonist here. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Listen, God knew. Why is he asking the question then? So that we can hear and all who are present can hear in this heavenly throne room. Okay? But where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth. And from walking up and down on it. Creepy, right? And these are times where it's like, if you don't read this and grab a hold of what's really going on in our day, I'm going to lovingly say you're being a fool. By the way, he is not omnipresent. He walks around. This isn't even in my notes, but let me just say it this way. Don't say Satan is after me. Because technically, he can only be one place at one time. And I would just say, I don't think you and I are that important. Now, I've just opened up a can of worms. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Because Satan has a whole bunch of helpers. Flunky helpers. But here is what is happening. He is presenting him before the Lord. Verse uh, eight, and the Lord's, uh, I'm sorry, do, yeah, to and fro on the earth, verse eight, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Did you get this? Satan, hey, hey, Satan, where you been? Well, you know, been on earth, walking to and fro, doing my nasty gig. Hey, question. While you've been doing the nasty gig, walking on the earth, have you noticed Job? Have you noticed Job? And then look what God says. 
Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless, an upright man who fears me and turns away from evil. Oh, that God might say that of me. Oh, that God might declare that of you and I. Listen, friends, he sees, he notices, he knows what's going on. And I don't say that in this realm as a be a very afraid thing. I say that as a be a very encouraged thing. The times when things are going and you're faithful in it, God's like, that's my man, that's my woman. And God knows that. And here even, God is placing one of his own on the table before Satan. Why is the Lord doing this? I mean, why is this card game going on? Why is he doing this with Satan? Because Satan's issue was that he did not want to fear God. He wanted to fear himself. And God is saying, hey, listen, do you want to see what it looks like to see one of my created beings be able to fear me rightly and turn away from evil like you didn't and be able to be blameless and upright like you aren't? Hey, do you want to see that? Listen, Satan needs to see this because this is such an in-your-face thing to Satan himself that God's created being could actually fear him Love him, walk with him, and yearn for him because of who he is. And Satan didn't want to do that. Friends, what's about to take place is Job is being put in a place without him even knowing it. Job is being put in a place to where Job is becoming a living testimony in front of Satan himself. What a ministry opportunity, right? Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. I don't know, somewhere in there, there's like a tail flinging around and going on. I'm trying. Verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Oh, so much theology in this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Hey, friends, I actually think Satan makes a great argument. Because here we just read in the paragraph before in scene one that Job has like everything, an awesome family, an awesome business, awesome respect, an awesome bank account, an awesome like everything. And Satan's like, well, of course he loves you. Of course he fears you. You've like pampered him. And actually, it's a great question. Job doesn't love you because of you. Job loves you because of what you give him. Are you seeing the poker game played? And then here I would say it this way. God argues that the, card ta- the cards on the table say, no, 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 no. Job lives 
the way he is because he loves me. And Satan is saying, no. He doesn't live the way he lives because he loves you. He lives the way he lives because you have made it too easy for him. Somewhere in there. And God says, okay. Testimony game on. Two questions before we go to scene three. How can they find out if Job really is about who the Lord is and not just the stuff that the Lord gave him? Answer, take it all away. Take it all away and lay him bare. And then you find out who Job really is. Take it all away, take the animals away, take the business away. Everything that's been listed in the first paragraph, take it all away. And then we'll find out. Does Job love the Lord because of what the Lord does for him? Or does Job love the Lord because Job loves the Lord? And second question with that. What's the answer for you? What if everything was stripped away? What if everything was stripped away from you? What would then be laying bare? By the way, friends, that scene right there is Revelation 20. When all is laid bare, except for the one on the throne and the books of life. And it's coming. Scene three. There was a day in a family dynasty. Dot, 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 or hashtag, all hell breaks loose, literally. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters, Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants at the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God from heaven came and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants at the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Oh, and one more. And while he was yet speaking, there came another, a fourth, and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And your children are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. There are so many layers of things we could converse about here, so many uh, theology issues we could talk about here. Let me just kind of try and break it down. Messenger number one comes in and says the uh, Sabians took the oxen and the donkeys and killed all of the caretakers. 
Messenger number two, the fire of God. Isn't that interesting? From the skies burned up the sheep and their caretakers. Messenger number three, the Chaldeans came and they killed all the camels and killed the employees and caretakers of them. By the way, note in the text, the Chaldeans planned and organized their way to make this happen. Oh, there's so many things we could talk about with that. Messenger four, a great wind kills Job's children. Imagine getting that email. No, no, no. Imagine getting that face-to-face message. Your business is gone. All of your probably thousands of employees, except four, gone. And if not, uh, that it needs to be any worse. So you find out your children are dead. In all this, we ask the question, why? Within us right now is this question of why did Job, what did Job do to deserve this? Isn't that? Let me just make some clarifications right now. This is not a consequence of a sinful choice by Job. We're not talking about that kind of suffering. This is not a a loving and purpose discipline given out by the Lord. Uh, It's not that kind of suffering that's going on. What is happening here, the kind of suffering that is happening, is suffering that's been allowed by God. And in these kinds of things, we, we, we so struggle with grasping that, but I cannot pull back from that because that is the truth of it. God has allowed all of this to happen. And if I can, we might say, yeah, but the kids, that's so unfair. The employees, that's so unfair. May I just make a comment of what we've talked so far in the series and what we talked through Revelation, but especially here recently in the series. We are tent dwellers. This is not our home. And I will tell you, if the seven kids were here right now before us, just like Ed, they're fine. They're fine. I mean, the seven kids, if they were here, if Ed's here, he's, if, if Ed was here, he's not like, you know what, I, I want to keep on struggling with this whole Alzheimer's thing, because this is really awesome, right? No, he wouldn't want that, would he? No. Hey, listen, that's gone. And for the seven uh, kids here, the young adults here, I'm telling you, if they were here, they would be like, listen, so I got a choice to be with the Lord or a choice to be here? Um, And that's one of these things that just raises up within us, this whole thing that, friends, we are so stuck on here and now. This is just a tent. We have a home if you are in Christ. Notice here as well, just a couple of comments. Satan is given the freedom to stretch out his hand. That's so creepy. Go ahead, Satan, stretch out your hand. Look at what Satan does when he stretches out his hand. He does not stretch out his hand to shake people's hands. He does not stretch out his hand to give hugs. He stretches out his hand and immediately, as fast as he can, he'll unleash hell. And the theology behind this even applies to today. Friends, This earth would be everything that is happening there over and over every moment of every day if Satan could do it were it not for God's restraining work on Satan right now in this time of redemptive history. And know this, when we went through the book of Revelation, there will come a time where God will step back and if you will, kind of go, have at it. And this will come. 
And Satan is no friend. He is not kind. He is prowling around like a roaring, lying, waiting to pounce and chew and eat up anything and anyone that has anything to do with God. And that is the image of God is in man and he would want to destroy us. Not because he could care, he could care less about us, but he hates God. And anytime he can do something to destroy something that is the Lord's, he will do it. And in this, this is a man who has a godly home and a godly business unlike anyone on the planet. And Satan just is like, right on. People who are nowadays are playing around with some of these dark things. This is no game. This is no game. Scene four. There was a response out of one man's heart. How would you respond to this? How would I? Verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and cussed God out. Let's talk about these. By the way, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it doesn't say that. Five actions here. First, Job arose. After hearing the four messengers, he he gets up from where he's at. So he, he was sitting, whatever, I don't know, at his desk, doing accounting work, I have no idea, and he gets this, man, I just, what was the scene like? One comes in, then the next one comes in, then the next one comes in, and the next one comes in. What? What? We just know the, he rose. Second thing he does is he tears his robe. I literally thought about having a shirt that I could rip today because I don't think that we understand what's going on with that. I mean, when someone just looks like, what do you do? What do you do when you find out your children are just dead all in a moment? And you were not expecting this. God didn't give you a note or an email or a text and he rose and tears his robe. I mean, he's just putting the grief that he is, just can't even fathom it. And then here's the interesting thing. The third thing is he shaved his head. Now, shaving your head is not a, a quick thing to do. Job couldn't go over and grab the electric razor, plug it in. I mean, to shave your head back, what do you do? You get like a Flintstone? Not the Flintstones, but a Flintstone? And like you cut it, listen, shaving your head back in that day had to be quite a serious task. And it takes time in this. This is where I think it's so important that it slows down the movement. He's thinking here, he's processing here. There's a great act of lamentation. All has changed now. And his action is now speaking on top of the tearing of his robe. He is in total agony. Everything has changed. And he's shaving his head. How long does that take back in that day to shave your head? 
And what he is doing is preparing for something. He is shaving his head in preparation for the next act. What's the next act? The next thing that he does is he falls on the ground. Friends, position matters. Position matters. A boyfriend kneels before his fiance, at least he's hoping, his fiance to be. Position matters. When you sing and raise your hands, I'm just going to say, I think it matters. I'm not making that like you have to, or you're more godly if you do and not if you don't. But position matters. This says something. If I can do it at a football game, why not before the Lord? It, position matters. Um, fists in the air and anger, that matters. Or, or pointing or just shoulders shrugged, walking away and kicking the dirt and, and just deserting the Lord. That, that would matter. That would show. And yet here in it, he falls on the ground. Position speaks. And here like John in chapter 1, he's going face down before the Lord in fifth Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and the text doesn't say he cursed out God. The text says he what? What stuns me about this passage is every time I read that, it reveals within my own self the lack of my thinking, would I have done that? This is a man with a high view of God. And not only does it permeate his private life and his public life and his family life, but it permeates his suffering life. God's fear of God permeates every aspect. And you read this here and it's like, so raw, so sacred right here. This is so, wow, oh my. What is happening? What's going down? Remember the heavenly poker game going on? Think just for a second. What is God thinking right now? I cannot even begin to fathom the joy that that must be. When God is watching his man going through this And the seven kids are there with him. God is not laughing and sitting back and not understanding what's taking place. He gets it. Imagine Satan. I'm just going to be real with you here for a moment. I just imagine him going, crap. Right? Crud. 
Never thought he would have done that. What a testimony that a human living out the fear of God before Satan himself. And Job doesn't even know that this is going on. We see no sign in the text of him knowing. Well, Job just doesn't fall down, but in his worship, he says some. Verse 21, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Three things he says. Naked I came, naked I shall return. That is so the reality of life, everybody. I mean, the Philippowitzes understand that, especially right now with Kelly losing her father. Born, die. And unless the Lord returns, friends, death is ahead. Well, you're happy, dude. No, I'm just real. I remember when my dad died. His closet still had all his clothes. The workbench that we kind of let him have in our business, the tinker, all his tinkering mess was still there. And he was gone. It's great theology here. We are born, we will die. Second, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. What a statement of the reality of control. Friends, you and I long to be in control, but we are not. Oh, we think we are. We wrestle to be. We try to be. But you need to hear this, and I need to hear this. The Lord is in control. The Lord is in control. Hey, we have an election coming up. The Lord is in control. Hey, the the world is kind of a mess right now. I don't know if you've noticed that. But the Lord is in control. I don't understand why it's happening the way that it's happening. Hey, the Lord is in control. But I don't know what's happening within my family. Hey, I want for you to know, the Lord is in control. He's not nervous. He's not sweating. He's not twiddling his fingers and wondering, (laughs) whoever's president is going to rock me. Chill out. And when suffering hits, the Lord is in control. And I don't like it. You don't like the suffering. And we're going to see because we're going to finish the end of the book of Job next Sunday. And if you were to read through the whole thing, Job comes to a place where Job, just like all of us, gets to a point and he's like, I don't get this anymore. I just kind of want to pack it up and die. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. And if you have money or looks or skill, the Lord can take it away in a moment. Because the Lord gave. The Lord can take away. Third thing he says, blessed is the name of the Lord. It's the reality of worship. 
three statements, the reality of life, the reality of control, the reality of worship. Even in the hurting, even in the suffering, even in the confusion and the pain, we live in the war zone of redemptive history. Understand, Job is not falling down in, very, in a very kind of uh, mechanical way, just going like, okay, so step number three, I'm supposed to do this, and then I should shave my head, and then I should fall. Oh, Lord, naked I came, naked I leave. This is not a creed. Job is pouring himself out and he's stating his theology that's going on in his head. He's stating his view of who God is. And in these kinds of moments, we're fine. God is fine because even through the rest of the text, there's this wrestling with who is God? What have you done? How has this happened? And friends, it's okay to wrestle with it. It's okay to question it. Look at the Psalms in it all. But ultimately, at the end of the day, a right fear of the Lord comes to the conclusion that the Lord is in control. And the Lord can do what he wants, and I am here to worship him and to give him glory. For all I know, maybe I could be in the same place here where God is trying to use me as a testimony to, like, Satan or a demon or or to other people. I have no idea all that's going on, but I know this. I am to worship him with all of my life, right? And that includes suffering. And when it comes down to being stripped of everything you have, I can't imagine because it's never happened to me. I can only wonder. Actually, my challenge for you today is not to wonder, but to consider with depth. What if the Lord has suffering as a ministry opportunity in place for you? Hey, friends, you should be preparing for it. What is going to be the scripture that's going to come to truth for you? How how are you to handle that and respond? We wrestle in it and we struggle in it. But but what's that supposed to look like? There's no reason we cannot consider what happens if. Theology does that. It works us, pushes us, and causes us to consider. Verse 22, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And I need to finish there. How do I know how big of a view I have of God? Answer. Strip everything away that matters. And then what matters? Do you love the Lord for who the Lord is? Or do you love the Lord for what the Lord has and is giving you? By the way, the core of the gospel is come to me. The Lord says, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. Listen, the answer isn't what all he will do. The answer is him. Come to him. Into his presence, even in the suffering with him, it is still the kind of thing that we can rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because we're with him. And that can only happen when he is really, really, really big in our thinking, in our theology, and in our lives. And oh God, I pray, would you help us with that? 
God, would you help us to grab a hold of who you are? Father, I even pray in this room right now, maybe there's some here where in them they are just sensing the reality of, frankly, they are in with you as long as you will give them what they want. Father, I would pray that you would help them to come to see that that's not what it's all about. It's all about who you are. And God's suffering grabs our attention. It accomplishes your purposes and it grabs our attention in it all. And we so often get caught up in the why of suffering. And I understand that. But ultimately, it needs to be about the who that's behind it all. God, I pray for the person in this room right now who is going through a suffering time. I would pray that this text would be an encouragement to them, a help to them, a big, giant, divine hug of hope for them. That even in the confusion of it, even in the relentless destruction of suffering, that this is just for a season. God, I pray we would be considering are we in this for you? Or are we in this for what you give? Lord, you talk about what you give. You talk about what you do, and that's okay. But at the core of it, God, it needs to be about relationship with you. If there is anyone in this room this morning that doesn't have relationship with you or needs to come back, maybe they've been that prodigal walking away. May they be reminded of the Father with open arms running to receive the prodigal back. You're bigger. You're bigger than our suffering. (laughs) You are God.